0: I'd like to begin by reading this passage of Scripture and follow along as I read out loud. This is the Word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Who is wise and understanding among you? If we were to ask this question to the outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins, perhaps he would tell us about an organization that he is part of called the Brights. According to their website, the Brights are an international constituency of individuals who are committed to a naturalistic worldview, free of supernatural or mystical elements. Along with Dawkins, other well-known members of this group include atheists Daniel Dennett, A.C. Grayling, and even the famous magicians, Penn and Teller. As their name suggests, the brights view themselves as enlightened and sophisticated individuals. And their name leaves no doubt as to what they think about those who hold to some form of religious belief. To be fair, the group officially denies that their name was chosen as a put-down to religious people. But this seems hard to believe, especially when they could have identified themselves in a thousand different ways. Why not call themselves the atheists or the naturalists? Just imagine the backlash that would ensue if an evangelical group identified themselves as the brights. The obvious arrogance and selfish ambition of the Brights even repulsed one of their own, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens criticized Dawkins and Dennett for their quote, cringe-making proposal that atheists should conceitedly nominate themselves to be called Brights. While the members of this group claim to be wise, their attitudes and actions reveal otherwise. Ironically, these bright people embody the very characteristics that James says marks the foolish wisdom of this world, arrogance and boasting. In the eyes of the Lord, it turns out that the brights are really not so bright after all while it may not be surprising to us to see this kind of arrogance in the world among atheists, what about when this kind of behavior infiltrates the church among believers? What happens when the church is filled with people who are marked by the so-called wisdom of the world? The sobering reality Is that sometimes even Christians can claim to be bright individuals, those filled with wisdom and understanding, and yet live in a way that calls into question their claim? How do we answer the question who among you is wise and understanding? Who are the true brights of the church? Throughout his letter, it has been James's purpose to identify the elements of true saving faith. We saw a few months ago from James chapter 2 verses 14 to 26 that true faith is revealed by our works, what we do. And last week, we learned a similar truth true faith is revealed also by our words, by what we say. Today, we will discover another aspect of true saving belief, that it is revealed by our wisdom, not just what we know, but also how we live. A true Christian evidences his faith not only by his works and by his words, but also by his wisdom. But this wisdom is not just something that we know, it's something that we show. It's not just seen in our brilliance, but in our behavior. It is not just seen in our aptitude, but in our actions and our attitudes. Wisdom does not just consist in the accumulation of the facts of life, but in the application of the fear of the Lord. In other words, there's a moral component to wisdom. It consists of knowing God and living our lives in accordance with his word. Notice again what James says in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Our conduct reveals the true nature of our cleverness. Now, it may be that James directed this question primarily at the teachers of the church. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, James begins his discussion of the tongue by singling out those who desire to teach and preach God's word. But as as I mentioned last week, what James says in this chapter also applies to every single believer. It is not just teachers who are called to be wise, but all believers are called to be wise as well. Remember how James begins this letter? In chapter 1, verse 5, he writes to the whole church, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask with faith, with no doubting. James teaches that wisdom is a gift from God available to those who humbly ask for it in faith. But this wisdom is displayed in how we live. James says that those who are truly wise and understanding demonstrate this by good conduct. Conduct here in verse 13 means manner of life, our behavior. And this behavior is seen in the works that we do. James talks a lot about works in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 25, he says that the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who works. He will be blessed in his doing. In chapter 2, verse 14, he asks, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have what? Works. Can that faith save him? In 2, verse 17, he concludes, So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, in chapter 3, verse 13, we see him expand upon this. It's like he's saying, just how the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also wisdom is dead apart from works, is dead. True wisdom is displayed in our conduct and deeds. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. James specifically says that it's seen in the, the meekness of wisdom. This is sort of an umbrella phrase that hovers over everything that comes below it. The meekness of wisdom carries the idea that true wisdom is characterized by both humility and gentleness. The same word translated meekness is used, for example, in Galatians 5, verse 22, in reference to one of the slices of the fruit of the Spirit. James used this same word back in chapter 1, verse 21, to describe how we should listen to the word of God. As we learned last week, whereas our tongues are often boastful, chapter 3, verse 5, they can be used to hurt other people, verses 6 through 10, we are to be characterized by true wisdom so that we're humble and that we treat others in a gentle way. Connecting our study on the tongue to our study of wisdom, Ron Blue has said, quote, A key to right talk is right thought. The tongue is contained in a cage of teeth and lips, but it still escapes. It is not intelligence that keeps the lock on that cage. It is wisdom. To add to this, wisdom not only controls our words, it also controls our actions. When we are filled with wisdom, we conduct ourselves in a humble and gentle manner. But what does this look like practically? And how can we attain true wisdom? In order to help us understand the nature of true wisdom, James contrasts it with false wisdom. He writes about false wisdom, the wisdom from below... In verses 14 through 16, that's your first outline point. Then in verses 17 through 18, he writes about true wisdom, the wisdom from above. This is what we are going to focus on in the remainder of our time together. What James says here is similar to what the Apostle Paul does elsewhere when he exhorts us to put off one thing and put on something else like changing a garment and then putting on another in its place. The the put-off, put-on concept is germane to the Apostle Paul's letters. And it's the key to sanctification. The process of becoming more like Christ involves putting off old sinful habits and practices and replacing them with new ones. When we only do the first part, focusing on stopping one set of behavior patterns, then we are shortchanging the sanctification process. You will never really make progress in holiness until you do both. Put off the behavior patterns of your old life before you knew Christ, and then put on the new sets of behavior patterns that characterize your new life in Christ. We are called to avoid one thing and to pursue something else. James's teaching in this passage runs along a similar track. In order to attain true wisdom and have it show up in our lives, we first need to avoid false wisdom and the deeds that accompany it. We put off one, And you put on another. So let's look first at what we should avoid. The wisdom from below. To begin, I want you to notice the origin of this wisdom in verse 15. Where does it come from? James says that it is not the wisdom that comes down from above. In other words, it's not from God. It is not heavenly wisdom. Rather, it comes down from below. Specifically, James calls it earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This really corresponds to the three enemies of the Christian. There are three enemies that wage war against the people of God the world. This is not the people of the world, per se. It's, it's the world system, the worldly way of doing things. The flesh, that part of human beings that is opposed to God's spirit and his work. And the devil, Satan, and his demonic forces. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And by the way, just as a footnote, there are three enemies of the true Christian, and there are three ways to fight against them. To successfully wage war against the world system, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. To fight against the flesh, Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And to stand against Satan, James chapter 4, verse 7, which we will look at in a couple months, says, Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are called to combat these three enemies on a regular basis. And James says that the pseudo-wisdom that is from below is derived from these sources. This is the origin of the wisdom from below. But let's next look at the outworking of this wisdom. What does it look like? James gives a laundry list of items that describe what false wisdom looks like in verse 14 and 16. Because there is some overlap between these two verses, we will only look at each feature once. The first characteristic listed here is bitter jealousy in verse 14. The same word is mentioned again down in verse 16. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, writes against many of the acceptable sins that we often tolerate in the church. One of the oft-overlooked sins he addresses is this sin of jealousy. Bridges writes, quote, Jealousy is usually defined as intolerance of rivalry. There are legitimate occasions for jealousy, such as when someone is trying to win your spouse away from you. God even declares himself to be a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of anyone or anything other than himself. Sinful jealousy occurs, however, when we are afraid someone is going to become equal to or even superior to us. The classic illustration in the Bible of sinful jealousy is that of King Saul's jealousy of David. After David slew Goliath, the women of Israel sang, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten, ten thousands. Saul became angry because they ascribed more honor to David David and to him. From that time onward, he regarded David as a rival and was jealous of it. Bridges says, we too can be jealous if we have been blessed of God in some area of life or ministry, and then someone comes along whose performance or results are superior to ours. When that happens, many of us experience jealousy. We don't want someone else to experience the success or blessing of God that we have experienced, end quote. That is bitter jealousy. The next sinful feature of the wisdom from below is mentioned in both verse 14 and 16. James calls it selfish ambition. Other translations render this as selfishness, self-interest, or even rivalry. It consists of having a partisan spirit to advance yourself and your own agenda before anyone and anything else, even God. This is the opposite of Matthew 6, verse 33, so that you seek first your own kingdom and your own righteousness, hoping to gain everything in the world for yourself. This is the reverse of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through four, so that you do everything from selfish ambition and conceit, counting yourself as more significant than others, and you look out for your own personal interests rather than the interests of others. A couple of decades before the birth of Christ, the Roman poet Ovid told a story about the tragic fall of Icarus. His story helpfully illustrates the snare of selfish ambition. Icarus's father had fallen out of favor with his ruler, King Midos, and was sentenced to imprisonment along with his son, Icarus. One day, Icarus and his father made wings from feathers and wax, and they soon took flight away from the prison. As they soared higher and higher, they reveled in their liberation. Yet sadly, Icarus wanted something more, to ascend to the sun itself. Ovid describes the boy's mournful demise. By this time, Icarus began to feel the joy of beating wings in air and steered his course beyond his father's lead. All the wide sky was there to tempt him as he steered toward heaven. Meanwhile, the heat of the sun struck at his back, and where his wings were joined, sweet-smelling fluid ran hot that once was wax. His naked arms whirled into wind, his lips, still calling out his father's name, were gulfed in the dark sea. And the unlucky man, no longer father, cried, Icarus, where are you? Icarus, where are you hiding, Icarus, from me? Then, as he called again, his eyes discovered the boy's torn wings crashed on the climbing waves. He damned his art, his wretched cleverness, rescued the body and placed it in a tomb. And where it lies, the land's called Icarus. The tale... Sounds similar to the fall of another son named Adam who desired to exalt himself above the one who created him. You shall be like God, he and his wife were told. He was jealous that God had something he did not and withheld something from his taking. And so he rebelled against God in a fit of selfish ambition. You know the story because it's your story and it's my story as well. We are often prone to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And when these sins characterize us, we are possessed by the wisdom from below in league with the world, the flesh, and the devil. At the end of verse 14, James further describes what selfish ambition looks like when he adds, do not boast and be false to the truth. When we have a bloated perspective of ourselves and think of ourselves as better than anyone else, we are not living our lives in accordance with reality. Now let's see what the outcome of this pseudo-wisdom is. What happens when we are characterized by this kind of wisdom? James says in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Chaos ensues when we are characterized by the wisdom from below. You can see what this looks like in the life of the local church by looking over one chapter, to James chapter 4. Notice what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, when the church embraces the wisdom from below, and fails to live according to the wisdom from above, then it begins to look a whole lot like the world. Infighting takes place, disharmony and discord ensue. James began this section with a question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who are the true brights of the church? It is not those who are characterized by the wisdom from below. Those pursuing their own interests and desires above everyone else's. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we should not be characterized by this kind of wisdom. Those who truly believe in Jesus Christ will be marked by a different kind of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. We need to put off the wisdom from below and put on the wisdom from above. So let's now look at our final point found in verses 17 and 18 and learn about the wisdom from above. James says in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. What James says in these verses counterbalances what he said in verses 14 through 16. If verses 14 through 16 are the problem, then verses 17 through 18 offer us the solution. To understand the wisdom from above, we first need to recognize its origin. Where does it come from? James calls it the wisdom from above. Earlier in this letter, a similar statement is made about the blessings that God gives to us. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the source of all goodness in the universe. And in a similar way, James says that he is also the origin and source of all true wisdom. Twice in the New Testament, God is identified as the only wise God. Romans 16, verse 27, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 17 By nature, God is eternally and perfectly wise. And because of this, he alone is the true dispenser of wisdom. Proverbs 2, verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Those who desire the wisdom that God gives must rely upon him to bestow it. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. As we seek to avoid possessing and being characterized by the wisdom from below, we must humbly rely upon God in faith and ask him to bestow upon us the wisdom that only he can give. We, we cannot muster it up ourselves. We do not have this in our beings, intrinsic to our nature as sinners. It is not a given, but a gift we must receive from God's gracious hand. But when God chooses, by his grace, To grant us this gift of wisdom, what does it look like? What is the outworking of this wisdom? As a point-by-point counterattack to the list in verses 14 through 16, James now lays out the features of true wisdom. Let's quickly take note of them. First, true wisdom is pure. This is the opposite of sinful. 1 John Chapter 3, verse 3, uses this word to describe the unblemished character and nature of Jesus Christ. It's related to the New Testament word for holy or sacred. Those who possess true wisdom demonstrate this in their avoidance of sin. A second feature of true wisdom is that it is peaceable. This comes from the, the common word for peace found in the opening paragraph of most of Paul's letters, grace and peace, it refers to someone who pursues peace and harmony. They're not eager to to get into a conflict or to fight with someone else. A third characteristic of true wisdom is identified as gentle in verse 17. This describes someone who is compliant, Very similar to what James says next. True wisdom is open to reason. Other translations say it's reasonable, submissive, and even willing to yield to others. A person with this character quality is filled with true love, which 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says does not insist upon its own way. James also says that godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. When you're full of mercy, you quickly forgive people who have wronged you, and and you're not eager to see them suffer harm because of what they did. As Ephesians 4, verse 32 says, we should forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. To be filled with good fruits simply means that you are characterized by good works. You're eager to meet the practical needs of others, and you desire to obey the Lord in your life. Wisdom is also impartial. The New American Standard Bible translates this unwavering. The wise person is consistent, reliable. They're not driven by the whims of their emotion. They're grounded in deep Conviction to the truth. Finally, James says that true wisdom is sincere, without hypocrisy, not two faced. There's a lot here to consider. True wisdom is derived from God and characterized by these qualities. Going back to the question of verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? who are the real brights of the church? It is not those who are clamoring for first place and seeking their own agenda above everyone else's. Rather, it's those who humbly seek after other people's best interests, so that there can be peace and harmony. Perhaps the best illustration of what this kind of wisdom looks like is the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the supreme example of wisdom. Theologian Michael Horton, in his book Ordinary, contrasts the sinful actions of the first Adam with the righteous actions of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. He writes, quote, God created us in righteousness and holiness, to extend his reign to the ends of the earth, glorifying and enjoying God was the object and goal that greeted Adam and Eve each morning as they loved and served each other with energetic satisfaction. However, instead of leading his wife and entire posterity in this Thanksgiving parade, Adam declared independence from his king. The immediate effects of his ambition were rivalry, and self-assertion, first between Adam and Eve, and then between Cain and Abel. The rest, as they say, is history. So too, however, is God's solution. In the fullness of time, the Father sent his Son. Where the first Adam sought to break free of his created rank and ascend to the throne of God, the last Adam who is God in his very nature, left his throne and descended to our misery. In the words of Philippians 2, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Horton concludes, while the first Adam launched a meet you at the top philosophy of life, Jesus Christ says to the world, I'll meet you at the bottom, End quote. Whereas our first father Adam sought to be wise in his own eyes, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sought to cling to the will of his Father and he perfectly demonstrated the wisdom from above. And because he was pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and then offered up himself on the cross for people who were not any of those things, then we too, beloved, can be forgiven of our sin and become wise people through faith in him. Now ask yourself, do these qualities mark your life? Are you characterized by moral purity, peacemaking, reasonableness, Mercy, good works, and integrity? Would your spouse say that you are? Would your kids? Would your fellow church members say that you are? Of course, none of us perfectly embodies these qualities. Only our Savior does. But as we have seen again and again throughout James, if we are true believers in Jesus Christ, then these things should practically and consistently mark our lives. If there is more jealousy, selfish ambition, and boasting in our lives than purity, a willingness to yield to others, and peacemaking, then something is wrong with our faith. Do not be deceived. True wisdom, which is displayed in tangible good works, is the evidence of true faith. This is what wisdom looks like. But what is its outcome? What does it result in? Notice verse 17. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make This recalls what James said in verses 11 and 12. Like produces like. When, by God's grace, we believe in Jesus Christ and are transformed into wise people, we progressively behave and speak in ways that are consistent with true wisdom. Our hearts, so to speak, are transformed into good soil capable of producing an abundant harvest of righteousness and peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the perfect embodiment of God's wisdom, made it possible for us to be imputed with the righteousness of God and to experience peace with him and with each other. And because of what he has done for us, we can experience peace in our midst. But this only comes about when we put off the wisdom from below and put on the wisdom from above. Do you see harmony and peace in our body? Do you desire harmony and peace in our body? Only those filled with true wisdom experience the blessings of peace. So who is wise and understanding among us? It is those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ who possess the wisdom of God and who demonstrate this wisdom in their behavior. Those who truly believe in Jesus Christ demonstrate the reality of their faith through wisdom. And this wisdom is demonstrated not just in our intelligence, but also in our obedience. Let's pray. Oh, wise God, we thank you for the wisdom that you have displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of wisdom, and he offered up himself for us on the cross to pay for our sin. He was raised to life, guaranteeing justification and eternal life for all who trust him. I pray that we would be trusting in him and that we would be experiencing the blessings of true wisdom. And by your spirit, I pray you'd cause us to live in accordance with true wisdom that comes from you. I pray that we would experience peace and harmony in our body, the fruit of true wisdom. I pray for these things, for your glory, for our good. In Christ's name, amen.